0: When you interact with your bank, it probably feels different than when you interact with a software technology company. That's because the biggest banks in the world were started before software became such a universally important tool, and their core competency is banking, not consumer software. Compare a company like JP Morgan to a company like Netflix. JP Morgan was started at a time when software was not at the forefront of every company, Netflix was started in a time when software was at the forefront of everybody's mind. And so the development process of Netflix, the company, reflects the importance of software. And it's harder to do that if your company has spent much of its lifetime out of the world of software. But today, most banks do make some kind of consumer-facing software. Since the banks were not founded by engineers, the software development process at that typical bank does not look like the software development process at a software company like Netflix. Monzo is a digital bank that was started with a focus on engineering. Since it was started in 2015, Monzo has always thought of itself as a software company. This gives it certain advantages over the older banks. Today's guest, Richard Dingwall, is an engineer at Monzo, and he joins the show to describe Monzo's software architecture, the engineering strategy, and the company's migration to Kubernetes. Richard has prior experience at several different banks and financial institutions, and it was really interesting to talk to him about his reflections of software engineering at previous banks and how that relates to his engineering experience at Monzo. I want to mention before we get started, we're looking for writers. We're also looking for a videographer for Software Engineering Daily. You can find those jobs at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. And if you're looking for a lower commitment way of getting involved with Software Engineering Daily, the Software Engineering Daily open source community is available at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. You can find our mobile apps, our website, as well as several other apps, and we also have those apps in the App Store, so you can work on them or you can use them. If you're a power listener of Software Engineering Daily, you might find our apps useful because they provide additional functionality beyond just the core podcast player functionality. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Richard Dingwall, you are an engineer at Monzo. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: You've spent a lot of your time building software for banks, and these are companies like JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, a few other financial companies. And you are now working at Monzo, which is a newer bank that was just started in the last, I think, what, four or five years? Something super recent? Actually, it's like 2015. 2015, Okay. There's been this explosion of new fintech businesses, whether we're talking about new banks or new payment gateways or new payment systems. Why is that? What caused the explosion of new businesses in the payments
1: space? So I think for us, it was in 2014 when the PRA, so that's the uh, Prudential Regulation Authority, that's one of the regulatory bodies here in the UK that oversees banks, when they introduced a new streamlined banking license application process which is called the mobilization route. And that enables new banks to sort of soft launch in a kind of private staff-only test mode before fully ramping up to accept new customers. And this was done to basically make it easier for new companies and to encourage competition because historically there hadn't been many new banks for a long time. So this was the time when Monzo and a number of other challenger banks appeared.
0: And how much of this was due to AWS and other infrastructure as a service providers? Was it strictly this regulatory benefit or did it have anything to do with the lower cost of infrastructure and you know all the additional services that have been built in the last, oh, let's call it 10 years, this, this boom of new infrastructure and developer tools that are much cheaper than things in the past?
1: So I don't think cloud providers like AWS were a requirement for starting banks like Monzo, but I think there were two really big benefits for companies like us, so one was allowing us to do iterative development with our IT infrastructure, kind of in the same way that we do iterative development with our software. So we don't know what the final product is going to look like before we start. Uh, it's a journey and we're going to change it many, many times and try a lot of different things before we kind of arrive at, the, at an optimal solution. And if we needed to be kind of provisioning physical hardware changes in our own data center every time our infrastructure changed, the cost would have been much higher and it would have slowed us down a lot. So that was the first benefit. The second one is really about talent. So any person with a laptop can sign up for free with an sign up for a free AWS account and start building quite sophisticated things. So we have much broader access to really smart engineers who are already familiar with the internals of our platform, which is really cool.
0: Ah so you're saying that the talent of the average engineer was raised and I guess the the broadness of the domain that some random engineers familiar with rather than being familiar with the Microsoft stack or the LAMP stack. Now you have a preponderance of engineers who are familiar with the AWS
1: stack. That's right. We even call them sort of uh, children of the cloud. They're engineers, you know, young engineers here at Monzo who've never worked in businesses which have had physical servers uh, on premise or anything. They've, They've always worked in Amazon or Google's cloud. Starting a bank.
0: We have lots of banks. Why did Monzo need to start a new one?
1: So I guess it was really the opportunity. I think I think there'd been quite a lot of sort of stagnation and sort of feature development and products um, in banking. As I said before, there hadn't been much new competition in the market and all the banks were sort of broadly the same. And really, if you, if you kind of logged into your bank account, uh, your online banking in sort of 2007 or 2017 there really wasn't apart from a sort of a css redesign there really hadn't wasn't a lot of new kind of features or development happening there so i think i think we really saw uh that we could do things much better we could uh, basically take give ba- we, we wanted to basically give power to customers like the sort of the power that you get from from other online platforms like gmail for managing your email for example like your bank your online banking should be as powerful as that
0: if you're anybody in the audience like me, you know that banks make money in a variety of ways. What are the main ways that banks make money?
1: So I guess the main, I guess the classic kind of way for a bank to make money is called net interest margin, which is basically the spread between uh, interest earned by the bank on paid by customers on loans, minus the interest paid out by the bank to customers for deposits, which are have a credit balance. So at, at Monzo we make, uh, and, and as well, uh, I guess, I guess in the, in the UK we have free current account banking, but it's, it's not really free because there are a lot of penalty charges, which can be quite, uh, easy to fall into. And some of them maybe are not completely, not very well aligned with the customer's needs. So at Monzo we make money by, uh, interchange, which is, which are fees paid by the merchant to accept card payments. Uh, interest we earn at the Bank of England on our deposits, marketplace partnerships. So, for example, if we identify that you could save some money uh, by switching your energy provider, because we can see your your energy provider bills, and we get some commission for for that. If you choose to proceed with that, uh, then we would, both the bank and the customer would benefit in the same way. We also have overdrafts, although we cut these rates very low, so you can't end up racking up huge bills. Um, and lending, but. In the long term, we're trying to ensure that our incentives are aligned with the customer so we don't profit through things like penalty charges uh, when you're in financial trouble.
0: So there are some of these business sectors where you can end up in a place where your incentives are adversarial to the customer who has their money deposited in that bank. What are some of those relationships and which ones have you selectively avoided
1: I guess the one that kind of pops to mind is is overdraft charges. So a lot of cust I think something like twenty-five percent of banking account account customers in the UK have are in persistent overdraft. And so it's really people that I guess are kind of less well off who maybe have less uh, sort of financial security. And so if, if you're you know, if you're in a credit balance but you don't pay anything for, for having an overdraft, but if you're kind of if you are in a negative balance and you, you're struggling to kind of make ends meet, those people are the people who are paying the most and they are kind of fueling the, I guess the profit to the highest degree which we don't think that's really acceptable and so we we do have some overdraft charges to kind of cover the we do take financial risk there which has a cost but we cap it uh, very low so there's no risk of these sort of ever ever growing charges and you know exactly what the maximum charge would be very clearly
0: when I think of a traditional bank, I think of an organization with a lot of organizational overhead that may not be necessary that perhaps Monzo has gotten an opportunity to rethink and you get this organizational overhead because perhaps the company builds its software infrastructure you know twenty twenty five years ago, and so you you have certain processes that you develop in the company that are crutches for the technology that's 25 or 30 years ago. That's just natural, and that's true of every organization. What are the advantages that you have, you know, since you get to start from scratch with modern technology and you get to rethink everything from scratch, what are the things that you have an advantage over where perhaps
1: you you have something automated and you don't need a human in the loop? So I think for us, uh, I mean, uh, one of our kind of goals is to be, what would a bank account look like I guess um, we're kind of inspired by companies like WhatsApp, who right? I heard WhatsApp have something like 300 million users and 55 engineers, which is this incredible scale. And so we were. Our, our goal is to to be like what would a bank account? What would a bank look like if it has a billion customers and and is able to scale like a company like WhatsApp? So, um, I guess right from the beginning, we've been able to kind of design our, our products and our processes in ways that scale not linearly, but uh, I I guess with uh, we can add large numbers of new customers without needing to maybe we need to scale up our AWS build to to increase the number of nodes running in our platform um but we don't need to like hire thousands more uh, employees or build build new branches things like that
0: and in WhatsApp's case the problem domain was scoped to something that was easier for everybody in the company to understand, which was advantageous for them. And their incentives were very straightforward. I I believe it was, you know, subscription-based business. And they're just like, let's just build a really good, really performant messaging system. And we'll keep our team, you know, only, we'll keep our team as lean as we can, because if that's all we're trying to do, then we should really focus on that competency and just build really good relationships between the engineers on the team and do it better than everybody else and instead of sprawling and doing all kinds of all kinds of things that may or may not be necessary so can you just focus is there some specific area of technological competency like because in the case of WhatsApp it's they focus on the messaging layer and so that boils down to a really performant Erlang system, with, which runs at a super low cost. And that's that's a pretty interesting downstream result of, of a high level business strategy. So how does that affect the mindset within Monzo from the business level? How does that boil down into engineering decisions?
1: I guess it translates. So if, if you if you want to have a bank with a billion customers, and, and with a sort of a low, quite a low number of staff, you need to like, basically design processes and products and things that, that require kind of no, no manual input or, or entry. So a lot of, for, for example, with a lot of banks, a lot of traditional banks, they'll offer like a mobile product or an on, online banking or phone banking, and you can do certain operations you can do through your web browser. But there's a, another class of operations, which you can only do over the phone, and then maybe an even higher class of, of operations that you can only do in person. And that does, so that doesn't, that doesn't scale. So we need to ensure that all operations, you can do everything through the mobile app. In many cases, customers are able to solve their own problems directly. We actually shipped a feature. uh, Well, we're in the process of shipping a feature at the moment where if say, if you go to a shop and you buy something, but, or usually it would more happen more likely to be an ATM when you get, you might get charged twice. And one of the charges will eventually drop off after a few days but if, if you are charged an error or, for example, the, the merchant terminal says decline, but the bank says it's approved and, the, and we, we take some of your money, you can actually reverse those charges yourself through through the app. So and I'm not aware of any other bank before kind of shipping a feature like that when, where customers can actually basically cancel a transaction themselves and get the money back for it. Obviously, within certain like safety limits and so on, uh, you cut so to prevent kind of abuse. So I think that would kind of inform the product decisions, which would then inform the technological decisions. Yeah, so, but, but then in, in that case, it, it's really just, this, I guess, the sort of making a platform that is is robust and doesn't have outages. We don't have scheduled outages, for example. We don't have scheduled maintenance. Uh, we run everything kind of active-active, multi-master.
0: That feature of enabling people to cancel transactions. That's a feature that you would only be able to implement if you had sophisticated fraud detection software. And I think the mentality around fraud detection has become democratized. So if you go 20 years back, a company like PayPal, they could build a core competency in fraud detection, and that could be their competitive advantage as a payments company. Today, the the knowledge of how to do fraud detection is much more widespread. Uh, to what degree have you found fraud detection to be a solved problem? And to what degree has, has that been actually something where you, you have had to build you know, more of a competency uh, in and, and innovate more?
1: So, um, it's a really interesting question. So, I think For a long time, Monzo was, I guess there are different types of fraud you can see on a bank account. So first party party fraud, which is where a customer uses their own account to do something nefarious. And then uh, third party fraud, which is someone maybe getting access to someone's bank account and stealing all their money or something. And I think basically we do all our kind of fraud uh, detection in-house. We have a mixture of kind of discrete rules and also some kind of machine learning models. And that's kind of been a a journey for us basically as we've grown as we sort of ship new products, new ways to pay things. Um, and and, and it's, it's one of those cases where you're kind of always one step ahead or trying to stay one step ahead uh, as people are kind of probing your your system for sort of vulnerabilities and, and flaws and things you can can do. But uh, we, we do find that fraudsters typically do kind of follow similar patterns to each other. So in general, I think we've we've done pretty well. But it's certainly been a case, I guess, similar to what was, I think, with PayPal. They, they were losing, like, a, huge amounts of money, I think, right at the beginning. But it was, it was almost like a, a development cost. Like, to, to build a really world-class fraud system, you need to have fraud so you can identify what it looks like and, and how to recognize it and how to put systems in place to block it.
0: Well, that's the exact same conversation I had with Stripe. I did a show about Stripe's radar Product, which is a fraud detection product they have, and a lot of the subjectivity to the fraud detection software that they they're building is how much fraud do we let in? And it's like a knob, you know, you can turn turn the knob to accept more fraud, and then you get more training data, and you also get fewer false false positives, you know, fault people that are falsely flagged as being fraudulent, but you know, the consequences you probably lose more money on people who actually are defrauding you. So, you know, when you look at those products like a, a Stripe Radar or a Smite is is a, another company I'm I'm friends with that, you know, they they do not exactly fraud detection but a more general service of detecting bad actors. Do you think this is something that's going to be completely commoditized where if i'm a company that has any sort of transaction process i can i can get you know fraud detection as a service cuz otherwise that's such a big development cost for anybody that's doing transactions
1: i think it it depends what your interfaces are that people could commit fraud through so for a lot of businesses just accepting card payments online i would be very confident using stripe for that i think when there are certain i think you need to look at your own product and see what how can people exploit your own product? Can you, I don't know, can you make payments through your product, something like that? Can you can you abuse refunds or or things like that? Can you ship products before kind of transactions are fully confirmed? How much, yeah, sort of, what's, what's your kind of chargeback rate and stuff? I think for a bank, it, it's more complicated because we have a lot more interfaces by which you can make payments. Uh, and each one of them has its own sort of fraud attack paths, which people can do that need which you need to kind of discover. Yeah, and, and then there are other products out there as well for sort of sharing sharing information about, like, basically when you do kind of detect fraudsters to share that information with, with other companies. Uh, so you might jointly blacklist them. I think we use mostly kind of police and government agencies for that sort of thing.
0: Let's get into engineering of Monzo. Describe the life cycle of a transaction. So when I deposit a check into an ATM or I make some kind of payment, walk me through some of the different systems that a transaction is going to
1: touch let's go with making a purchase with your card so so say you walk into a shop to buy a sandwich or something so the the checkout staff will will enter the amount into the tr- into the terminal they'll ask you to insert your card uh, let's say it's say or either if, if it's a chip transaction or a MagStripe transaction or contactless, the parties involved are still the same. So the ter- merchant terminal would basically, if it's a chip transaction, there would be a, commun- a conversation between the card and the terminal. That protocol is called EMV. That's the merchant terminal would then send uh, that data to, could be the merchant systems or it could be a payment gateway. That would be the company who would provide the, term, the payment terminal to the, to the merchant. They would perform a bunch of security risk checks and, and sort of fraud checks to see maybe this is like a, a card we've blacklisted before. They would then forward that on to the to an acquiring bank. So this is a bank which doesn't have like retail customers. It, its customers are the merchants. Uh, so and this so the acquiring bank would be connected to the card payment scheme uh, like Mastercard for example. So the acquiring bank would then run a series more checks. They would then form forward that message on to the card network. The card network would run even more checks. They would then send that to the issuing bank, which would be Monzo, for example. That would then, we would re- then receive that request as like a sort of a request response message. Uh, we would then either just make a an authorization decision whether to decline or to approve it. And if we approve it, then we would update our, our ledger and then we would return a response back to the, back to MasterCard and then back to they would return the response back to the acquirer, which go back to the, and eventually all the way back to the merchant terminal. And after that happens, then we would kick off a bunch of asynchronous processes for things like transaction creation and the sort, of, the sort of feed enrichment and things like that. And all of that needs to happen in, I think, nine seconds, which is kind of, sounds like a quite astronomical, astronomically high amount of time. But actually we find in, I think that's the requirement, but we find in in practice, it really needs to happen in about one second. Otherwise, we see transactions get canceled.
0: And so the payments infrastructure, if that's your, your highest throughput volume, how bursty is that? Is it, is it a very steady load of traffic throughout the day or do you have a lot of spikes? Do you, is, is scalability, up and down scalability, a big concern for you?
1: I think in terms of, it's basically, I guess, kind of daily, we, we have one big spike uh, in the morning. So uh, when everyone goes to work and a lot of people buy, you know, coffees or things like that, then it goes a bit quiet until lunchtime. And then there's another spike again at the end of the day for sort of rush hour going home. Last, the last sort of Fridays of the month when everyone gets paid, that's always a, a big day. But apart from that, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's basically just sort of seasonal human behavior, basically.
0: The thing that drew my attention to uh, Monzo in the first place was the openness in talking about the infrastructure. And part of that was the discussion of, of migration to Kubernetes. So you migrated from Mesos and Marathon to Kubernetes. Could you tell me about that process? And I think throughout that conversation, we can probably explore in a little more detail what your infrastructure actually looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think we were quite an early adopter of Kubernetes. I think it was like June or July 2016. Um, so this was the time before we had our full banking license. So basically before getting a, a banking license is a slow process it takes. I think it took us a couple of years. And so before we were allowed to issue our own cards and basically host a bank ourselves, uh, we ran a prepaid program where basically uh, we used an agency bank and we had our own branded prepaid MasterCard cards where customers could load money on. And then the app works pretty much the same as the current account app works. So you get the sort of full experience. And we were able to do iteration and, and development. But at that time, the system of record for our customers' balances was this third-party card processor system who they had a license um, before while we were still working on ours. So at this time, we realized we probably wouldn't have another opportunity to replatform before launching a current account on our own infrastructure So on the day of migration, we basically cloned the bank. We were running like two monzos, if you like. We used Terraform to bring up a new production environment, running Kubernetes alongside the old one. And then I think a few stateful services like Cassandra, which we use thats our main database, and it's message queues, like NSQ and stuff, that was shared between the environments. And then we just switched traffic over I think we've actually done that more than once since when we've done things like Kubernetes upgrades as well.
0: We'll get into the Kubernetes stuff in a little more detail. A small uh, side note, Cassandra as your main database, what's the reasoning behind using Cassandra?
1: Cassandra is a, it's a distributed key value store with no master nodes. So all the nodes are created equal, which means that there's no sort of failover. And it runs this thing, this sort of ring topology where basically keys get written into tables. They get hashed and then written into a table on a node. According to whereabouts in this ring, it hashes to. And you can tune uh, the level of consistency. So you can say, I want to write these values into this table. But the write should only succeed if definitely it gets written to a minimum number of nodes. So you don't have your data. Your data exists on, on multiple nodes at once. It works really well for us. It has incredible write performance and read performance i think pretty much all of our kind of read and write operations earn sort of sub 10 milliseconds Um, and it's really i think it's one of the things that kind of really powers monzo
0: we've done other shows about cassandra so if people want to know more about how and why to use a masterless replicated key value store they can check those out but could you maybe contrast it with other options for example what would be the penalty of using a MySQL database instead of Cassandra or trying to use MongoDB instead of Cassandra
1: I don't have too much experience with MongoDB, but with a traditional relational database, basically you would you would need to sort of use transactions to write into that into that database with kind of consistency and to ensure that your write isn't going to conflict with other people's rights and you're not going to read data which is in the middle of being written by someone else. Uh, Cassandra doesn't provide, doesn't have kind of ACID transactions like that. So you kind of need to do that yourself. So we, at Monzo, we actually use etcd for that, which is another distributed key value store, which runs, we run it in memory. Can you hear that clapping? They're
0: clapping for etcd. etcd, yeah. <laughs> solving transaction atomicity, solving Kubernetes consistency,
1: <laughs> deserves applause. Yes. So uh, at Monzo, so yeah, we use etcd to basically provide that locking. So, we would have a, a service, which would be a process running on a machine somewhere, uh, which is writing to, to Cassandra. Before we do that, we would acquire a lock in etcd, which is basically this distributed key value store, runs in memory. So one service would insert a key into etcd with the, a, lock I, a lock ID, which would probably be something like the customer ID or something, basically the, uh, the scope that we want to lock on. And then other services, if someone was trying to do a concurrent read or a concurrent write, and they wanted consistent view of the data, they would also try to acquire that same key in etcd. And if the key already exists, they would wait until it is deleted, because that would indicate that another service is has acquired that lock. And then, yeah, when, when that lock is, is available, then the other service, so, so the services are basically serialized. That basically allows you to do kind of serialized access things, but serialized access to anything, just, just in your service. So that's how we kind of lock around Cassandra.
0: That makes sense. Although it sounds like a lot of work to go through in order to ensure locked database transactions. And you got to imagine there are some cloud hosted services that, you know, give you all of this stuff out of the box. I don't know if it's Spanner or some other cloud service Do you have any, I don't know if you have any more contrasting detail for why Cassandra over the other, you know, perhaps the hosted solutions, or is it it an element of four years ago, maybe you just simply did not have this offering available as a service on any cloud provider?
1: I think this is one piece of infrastructure that we we did want to run ourselves. My understanding is actually before I joined that these sort of decisions were made, but my understanding is that, yeah, maybe we could use a database like Spanner or something but then maybe that would tie us to a particular cloud and I think we have a lot of operational experience running Cassandra um, so I think we were kind of more confident to process that
0: cool with Cassandra do you have to do a export of the data in order to do analytical processing on it if you want to run aggressive machine learning jobs on it you don't want to be hammering the Cassandra database itself right
1: no, and it's even, being a key value store, it's actually quite difficult to do sort of table scan type queries. You can't do, you can basically, in Cassandra, you can only look things up by direct ID lookups or by ID range kind of scanning, which, which is useful for things like time series when, you, when the ID might be, or one of the uh, the partition key might be a, a timestamp. But at Monzo, we use something called like a firehose architecture where basically all of our services emit um, events they publish messages to a message queue when things are happened. so for example one feature that we have is you can freeze your card through the app so if you want to just disable your card maybe i don't know maybe you've misplaced it and you're not sure you're you're worried about someone finding it up and making fraudulent transactions so you can just freeze it while you look for it and so that would involve a right to c- acquiring an etcd lock make on with something like the card id as the lock key writing updating a row in Cassandra to mark the card as, as frozen, which would then cause any transactions to be declined, and then publishing a card.frozen event to a message queue. And that two things happen with that. So one, that gets used for triggering asynchronous behavior in our platform so other services could then listen to that. An example of that would be if your card is added to Apple Pay or a Google Pay wallet, we have to synchronize the state of the virtual card in the wallet with a physical card. So that would, that would trigger that sort of asynchronous behavior without. So you're not waiting for that as you freeze your card in the app. It happens afterwards. And then the second place that those events go is to BigQuery. to Google BigQuery where we run a lot of kind of analytics, all of our kind of, I guess, um, that's, that that's so sort of a lot of our basically you, you can use those for, for really anything sort of observing sort of customer behavior uh, observing you know how people use the app things which are happening sort of bulk aggregate reporting and analysis you know building building funnels to see where people are using certain features and dropping drop-off rates and all sorts of stuff so um bigquery is, is super useful for us we use it a lot
0: the fire hose architecture that you described I think that would overlap with some people's definition of event sourcing or CQRS, this this family of ideas where a change to your data model starts with a message to a distributed message queue, which in your case is Kafka. Kafka has the PubSub queue and other data sources can read from that queue and update their own Models of the world, whenever they get the chance, so that you have a distributed append only queue of of the event history across your platform, and you have materialized views that are more responsive to particular uh, query patterns, whether you're updating Cassandra for your transactionality, or you're updating Elasticsearch for your searching, or you're, you're querying and updating your BigQuery cluster for analytics you have different patterns for accessing the data and, and updating things. And to use Kafka for that, why Kafka? Why do you use Kafka over other messaging systems?
1: So as a bank, I think we need to, it's kind of driven by business requirements, really. So as a bank, we need to make certain guarantees that things actually happen. So as an example, we can't commit to making an important direct debit payment if you have like a bill for your mortgage, you know, like your monthly mortgage payment or something. And then we commit, yeah, we're going to make that payment for you on the third of each month or something. And then when we actually try it, uh, it times out. And then that's it. Or or maybe we, I don't know, the message got lost somewhere or something. So I think Kafka provides really good guarantees that a message has been published. It also has this kind of tunable replication factor similar to to Cassandra. So you can say, publish this and only, it should only succeed if if it gets published to this many nodes. Um, So there's at least kind of end copies of your message on different nodes so you can tolerate the loss of of a certain number of nodes. It's masterless as well. So there's no, again, there's no single point of failure and there's no kind of failure process that needs kind of testing. One one thing about it, it's strictly ordered. So uh, many operations in our platform don't require strict ordering. If if you and I both uh, try to make a payment to pay our friends at the same time and one happens before the other, uh, that doesn't really matter. That certain things uh, where we do kind of constrain, we do kind of serialize things. So in our ledger service, for example, um, that does require strict ordering. So Kafka is really good for that.
0: It's useful as a medium for this fan out messaging to different materialized views of your overall data model. But you're not using Kafka, if, if I uh, if I understand correctly, you're not using it to have services communicate with each other, so you have ser- microservices architecture where different services have necessity to to call other services, and and you get the you know these distributed traces of big chains of services that are calling each other because each service is scoped to some specific thing. Maybe it's calculating a tax uh, that you have to get, or it's uh, you know grabbing a you know an update to you know, the rate of, I don't know, financial something. But you've got lots of different services that are specific to a, some narrow domain. You've got narrowly scoped microservices. Tell me about how the services communicate with one another in contrast to this pub-sub notion of messaging. I mean, services also have a notion of messaging each other, but it's, it's as as I understand, unrelated to the notion of publishing to a message queue for updates to your durable stores.
1: So yeah, so I think, yeah, I think it's good to look at basically how the services talk to each other. So to Monzo, we use uh, microservice architecture. So instead of running maybe a handful of very large kind of monolithic service processes, which dispatch things using function calls within one process, we compose systems out of a lot of smaller components, which all run as individual processes and then talk to each other. So we have two main types of communication between services, the synchronous requests, which we call remote procedure call or RPCs. This is for things where we want to wait uh, when we need to know the result, if they succeed or fail. So for example, making an ATM withdrawal should wait while we validate your PIN and it should decline if it's unsuccessful. The other type of communication is asynchronous messaging. So as I said, we, we use those when a response is not immediately required. So. Mm-hmm for something when we want something to happen, but it doesn't need to happen immediately and we're not gonna wait around for it. So an example of this would be like, when you make a purchase, we send you a push notification to your phone to tell you about that, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't wanna put that push notification on the critical path of the actual transaction initiated from the payment terminal. We wanna put that on an asynchronous uh, message queue and then we'll, we'll process that afterwards. And so for our synchronous uh, RPC transport, we use HTTP. And for our asynchronous transport, yeah, we use use Kafka.
0: What are the messages that are being sent over HTTP? What format are they in? Because you could do JSON over HTTP. You could have grpc over HTTP. So what are you using for the messaging medium?
1: So at the moment, we just aimed for simplicity at the moment. So uh, they're just JSON over HTTP. We kind of chose HTTP as our... RPC transport, just because all all programming languages uh, can talk to each other, have HTTP servers and HTTP clients and can talk to each other. Whereas if we'd written some custom, some very clever custom RPC client library um, with all sorts of bells and whistles, we would need to implement that in every programming language before we could use it. And so the vast majority of our services are written in Go, but some programming languages are better equipped for solving certain problems. So so that's why we kind of chose HTTP. And, and we just use HTTP and JSON at the moment, I think, I think it's likely we would switch to HTTP two quite soon, and possibly gRPC. But for now, yeah, just just plain JSON works pretty well for us.
0: Why do people switch to gRPC? What are the constraints that that they might hit with JSON that would cause them to switch to gRPC as their messaging protocol?
1: So I'm not super familiar with gRPC, but I guess I guess uh, from from my kind of limited understanding, the serialization is faster and i think can do uh, code generation with it so basically generating all of your sort of message types in whichever language and also service definitions so you can sort of you can have the the sort of um dsl for describing your services and messages and then and then generate clients in in different languages that can talk to each other
0: right so if your organization started to sprawl and it got really big maybe you want to have more type safety or Constraint on who can send what message in what format, uh, and you know you probably also can tighten up the any latency sensitivity, you know, because you have the better serialization layer. But anyway, there's other shows where people can can look into that. In this inter-service communication, you use a service mesh. So I've done several shows about the service mesh in the abstract. But have not talked to people about service mesh in application at any particular company that is using service mesh as a customer. I've only talked to people who are building service mesh technology. Why is service mesh useful to you?
1: Yeah, so um, so I guess maybe first I'll kind of explain how it actually works in kind of basic terms, and then and then sort of the benefits it provides. So uh, we use Linkerd as a, as a service mesh in between services. So what that actually means, so. All of our services are deployed on uh, in Kubernetes and, and, and on nodes. Um, we deploy Linkerd as a daemon set on, so it runs on every single node, and it runs as an HTTP server. So all of our services, if they want to make an HTTP request to another service, they make a request, an HTTP request to localhost with the name of the, of the destination service in the URL path, just as a, as a, as a string. Linkerd then uh, re- handles that request It knows where all of our services, all of our service processes are actually running. So on which machine, on which node and which port uh, by talking to the Kubernetes API, rewrites the URL with the IP and the port of the node containing the destination service and forwards it on. Uh, So the service, so all of our services just think they're making requests to local hosts, uh, but actually the request gets rerouted to the destination service, which might be, it might be on the same machine or it might be on a different machine if the request fails due to like a transient failure, like a timeout or something, Linkerd will actually wait and then retry the request. So up to up to a certain kind of retry budget and up to a certain number of, of attempts. So basically you can write code that just makes a very, very basic HTTP request with absolutely no kind of bells and whistles to localhost. And you'll automatically get service discovery, retries, circuit breakers, all of that kind of good stuff that gets uniformly applied across any HTTP request between our services.
0: In contrast to a world where I'm not using a service mesh, I would have to write custom routing logic and retry handling logic and circuit breaking logic within my service, potentially, which would mean you've got programmers who should just be developing services also writing this code that is, in some sense, a commodity across the entire infrastructure.
1: Exactly, yeah. And then you would need to kind of, you also maybe need to tune those parameters at runtime. Uh, There's quite a lot of configuration to maintain, so having Linkerd kind of automatically do it between requests just makes it a lot easier uh, for us. So
0: we jumped to other infrastructure topics, but this migration, you dropped... 75% 75% of the infrastructure cost over time with this migration to kubernetes and the process was as you said you you spun up a clone of your infrastructure so for a while you you know you you had an increase in infrastructure cost but over time you were able to realize okay let's this is stable and gradually move more and more of your traffic off of your old infrastructure to kubernetes And as I said, you you dropped, I think, 75% of the infrastructure cost. And that's amazing. But is infrastructure cost a big percentage of your overhead at Monzo? It seems like the majority of the overhead is going to be engineering man hours or woman hours. Make the case that this is a worthwhile migration despite the engineering cost.
1: I think that was a nice benefit, and it? Certainly, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I th- and I think that was the, the cost saving I, I understand was mostly down just to Kubernetes kind of bin packing algorithm for running m- containers on a, on a node and kind of uh, how it allocates, how you can kind of allocate resources to them. Yeah, our, our, our kind of infrastructure costs are quite big, but certainly much smaller than our I think our staff, uh, staff, staff costs are much higher. I think that's the, the sort of main cost at the moment.
0: Right. And there was probably a massive increase in developer productivity because of that migration.
1: Yeah, I think um, Kubernetes is is really great. Everyone can uh, ship things whenever they like. Everything's very hands on. Very, I, th- I think it just gives tremendous amount of kind of power for sort of engineers to own code all the way through to production, uh, rather than sort of handing things over the fence to other. Other teams to actually operate.
0: I know we're up against time. I I had just had a few other questions to conclude with. So we did all these shows recently about cryptocurrencies and the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Do you think at all about how the traditional banking industry, like you're operating within in, in Monzo, will integrate with the cryptocurrency world?
1: That's a really good question. At the moment, we don't really have any plans. I think it's at the moment, uh, I guess there are, there are a few sort of applications where you could use it. We could offer, you know, Bitcoin trading to our customers. Um, we don't, we know some customers would absolutely, absolutely love that uh, and be really over the moon if that happened. But uh, we also appreciate it. It's still a, as, as successful as kind of Bitcoin is, as popular as it, as it is. Uh, it's still a very small minority of our customers asking for products like that. Uh, I guess our, our ledger um, is it's a centralized non cryptographic ledger i don't I think for banks i think I think it makes more sense to basically centralize at the moment in terms of customer our own kind of customers' movements of money inside our own bank yeah, so I think at the moment we don't really have any plans, but uh, we I, I guess we're well positioned if you know if something comes up
0: What are the other kinds of aspirational technologies that you could eventually layer into a core banking system. So if you took a, if you took a bank and you gave it the, the aspirations of a, you know, like you take a company like Amazon or Facebook or Google, you can do these exercises where you, where you extrapolate the business 10 years into the future and be like, these are probably the things that they're aspiring to right now, or some of the things that they're aspiring to and they're futuristic and they can be exciting but if you're inside of a bank today, or maybe a financial exchange, you may not be privy to the same level of excitement and ambition. But it seems like this is probably something that you do have as a competitive advantage within Monzo. You probably have that aspiration, that, that ability to see applications of Cryptocurrencies or augmented reality or who knows into how it could actually be useful for a bank. So, what are some of the futuristic, aspirational technologies that get thrown around? Uh, you know, at at five PM on a Friday when when everybody's kind of uh, frazzled and just um, you know getting excited about what what could be in store for the future.
1: That's actually not too many that come to mind. I think I think we're we're quite cautious. We we do kind of. I think in in some ways we absolutely dive in and go crazy. Like every time there's a new iOS feature that we can take advantage of, operating system feature that we can take advantage of, or a new uh, Android feature that that we can do something cool with. In terms of other kind of technologies, I think yeah we we kind of play around with a lot of stuff, but it, it's really just about things to make money work better for people, uh, <laughs> and also just making us our own systems more resilient and and. Yeah. So I don't think there's really any I can't, I can't think of any kind of aspirational kind of flashy technologies that we're that we're super bullish on.
0: <laughs> They're clapping for you once again. <laughs> okay. Well, Richard, I mean, that's a valid answer. You know, in these interviews I I actually got emails from people recently who were like you did t- too many shows on Ethereum and and the craziness that could be built within an application level blockchain. And, you know, there's a whole lot to be done with just money. Like you just make money work. It has a lot of positive impact on the world.
1: There actually is one one thing. So our public API, which we put on the back burner a little bit as we focused on just building up our current account just to get that working really well for, for our customers. So I think there are some really exciting things we can ship through that. So sort of merchant integrations, you know, uh, things like Basically replacing, you know, you might carry, uh, I don't know, cards with like stamps on them, sort of loyalty cards, things like that. You know, imagine if a merchant, if you buy something and the merchant can actually enrich, can actually add things into your bank statement to like provide more details of your purchase or like your warranty information or like shortcuts to, I don't know, do, a, do an exchange or something or a refund, like things like that. So I think that's a really interesting area, which we are looking to spend a lot more time on in the next few months. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that one metric of measuring how much ground there still is to be covered in traditional banking is how thick my wallet still is. I've got bus passes, subway passes, loyalty cards, credit cards, and then I've got this smartphone and I'm like, why do I have all these other things?
1: Yeah, I mean, hopefully we can uh, tokenize them into the uh, secure element of your phone and get those, yeah, get your wallet smaller.
0: Richard, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. Wow.